Hi, I'm Debony Morgan. Welcome to the Spirit of Now Zeitgeist podcast, where we talk to people who have been influential in spiritual lives of people who are spiritually independent. Uh, today we have with us Sean Murphy, a fully authorized Zen teacher. We like to call him Sensei Sean in the American White Plum Zen lineage with over 30 years of Zen training experience, as well as a 2018 National Endowment of the Arts Creative Writing Fellow. His One Bird, One Stone, 108 Contemporary Zen Stories won the 2014 International Book Award in the Eastern Religions category. He's the award-winning author of three novels with Bantam Dell Books, receiving the Hemingway Award for first novel for his The Hope Valley Hubcap King and the 2009 National Press Women's Communication Award for Best Novel, The Time of the New Weather, and the 2017 William Faulkner Wisdom Award for Novel in Progress for his current project, Wilson's Way. He is the founder of the nonprofit Sage Institute for Creativity and Consciousness, which hosts an innovative meditation leaders training program. He teaches writing and meditation at the University of New Mexico, Taos. Now, I can say, because I have read the nonfiction books, that they are amazing and funny, which is relevant to our conversation today. So welcome, Sean. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, great to be here, Debony. Thank you. So as I was saying, the the your books are funny. They're wise, but they're also funny. And so today I thought, uh, who better to talk about humor and levity than a sensei? I think so many people think of Buddhism as something that is heavy and profound and takes commitment and maybe austerity and it just kind of has a heavy feel I think mm -hmm. for some people who may not be close to it so you know my first question is is there room for levity in spirituality is there room for humor oh boy I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't have devoted 30 years to practice if there wasn't a sense of humor in it you know it was one of the first things that drew me to the Zen tradition is um is there's a iconoclastic um, kind of stance with it, which which often involves humor, and there's always room for humor to make to make light of such a deep and heavy practice. It's just it's the leavening agent that it needs, you know. And uh, the way Zen started was uh, Buddhism joined with Taoism in China, and Taoism has a he healthy mixture of oh this kind of view of human folly, which has a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek element to it. And uh, the, way the, the way the stories about Zen go, it's said that Buddhism had kind of hardened up and become very serious a thousand years or so after the death of its founder. This was uh, about 500 uh, AD in China. And Buddhism, uh, Zen arose partly out of wanting to puncture the sanctimonious, you know, and, and uh, overly uh, reverential and kind of ossified um, a feeling that was starting to creep into the original Buddhist teachings. So. That's interesting. I didn't yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So it kind of it begins with this this sense of, oh, let's just toss things on their ear a little bit. So there's this thread of crazy wisdom and uh, the holy fool that runs through Zen, which is it's part of what made it attractive to me in the first place. I don't think I could practice in a tradition that it didn't have a sense of humor. Since the the humor piece was attractive, 
how did how did you make a commitment to the path? Yeah, well, I remember running across one of the first one of the first stories that I ran across was in a book called Zen Flesh Zen Bones by Paul Reps and a collection of of Zen stories. And there's a a traditional story that caught my eye immediately and made me wonder about this tradition when I was I was in college in my 20s, I think, when I read it. And it's a story many people have heard. This learned professor comes to Japan in, you know, maybe sometime in the 1800s or something and and wants to learn about Zen from this distinguished, well-known Zen master. And they sit down together. And of course, it's Japan. It's Zen. There's always tea. And so they've got a pot of tea brewing. And, and the professor immediately starts to ask, all these philosophical questions about Zen and starts to, um, you know, in the middle of it, uh, slip in how much he knows about the history of Buddhism and the history of Zen and what years everything happened and, uh, you know, what the names of the great masters were and all of this. And uh, and so the, the Roshi, the Zen master is saying, oh, very interesting, very interesting. You know so much about Zen. And he begins to pour a cup of tea for the professor and the uh, the tea reaches the top of the cup, and then the master keeps pouring. It starts to flow over the sides of the cup, and the professor's watching for a minute, wondering, can I say anything about this? Is this a mistake? <laughs> what is this? And and then finally, he can't contain himself anymore, and he says, Roshi, Roshi, the cup's too full. It's running over. And the Roshi says, uh, that's the way your knowledge uh, has presented itself to me. Uh, and and you'd have no room for me to pour anything new in. You have to empty your cup before you you can receive any real teaching. And so you know it's uh, it's quietly humorous. And I just thought, well, you know, a tradition where a teacher would use that kind of method, you know, <laughs> rather than trying to explain to the professor that you know that he's kind of full of himself too full of himself. What a great way. Just demonstrate it that way. And when I started to explore the tradition for myself, there's, um, you know, sometimes things when they happen aren't so funny, you know, (laughs) but afterwards you realize there's kind of a cosmic joke being played on you. And I I feel like um, probably a lot of us have felt that way. My coming to serious Zen practice, there's a story about that, that again, I find funny in retrospect. Um, I started practicing uh, in the late 80s and I was still basically coming at it with a hippie attitude. You know, I thought Zen, Zen, you know, we're just going to chill out, you know, and and, uh, I wasn't quite prepared for the rigor of the the practice. I mean, the the hours and hours of sitting meditation and um, the um, the discipline that is required. And I started practicing at this uh, at the Zen Center of Los Angeles, which had had been going for a long time and had a fairly relaxed feel at the time. And but I met a couple of visiting monks from a um, monastery back east, and I was very impressed with them. They were just passing through and they invited me to come visit Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York. Uh, Next time I was back east. And at that point, I I, uh, I used to go um, back east to caretake some property in Maine in the summers. And so I thought, oh, well, next time I'm out there, I'll, I'll drop in and see them. And um, so I, I dropped into this Zen Mountain Monastery, which ha- had quite a rigorous feel and a, a community that involved 
um, some very committed resident monastics with shaved heads and the robes and the whole thing. It was just a lot more of a uh, monastic, um, very disciplined, kind of Japanese-y looking traditional samurai feel to this place, you know. And just thought, cool, well, okay, I'm interested in this. And, and uh, uh, we were sitting the morning, I was just there for... I was just supposed to be there for a day and a half or something, a couple of days. And um, we're sitting there the first morning and there's this uh, tradition in Zen where you meet with the teacher <clears throat> and uh, you're called to, for private interviews with the teacher. It's called technical term is Dokusan. And um, I was sitting there and as a visitor, I didn't realize I would be called up first for the meeting with the teacher. And these private interviews with the teacher they uh, have a reputation for being a little bit daunting. You know, the teacher will kind of probe you to test your what kind of insight you have or whatever. And, uh, you know, I was at this point very early in my practice where I was I was still nervous about these kinds of encounters. And I'd heard that the teacher at Zen Mountain Monastery, who I later became very close to, John Dido Lurie, became my primary teacher for many years. I heard that he could be a rather imposing figure and uh anyway so i'm sitting in silence in the monastic hall and there's 30 or 40 people sitting and then the monitor who's in charge of these things calls out um uh the makes the call for interview doksan with the teacher and says the doksan line is now open uh first to any anyone visiting from out of town i thought oh that's me and so the place I'd practiced a few times, Zen Center of Los Angeles, had this relaxed atmosphere. So I got up in a relaxed way. I was using a sitting bench at the time, um, and I began to fold up my sitting bench. And uh, I'd already noticed that if somebody moved in the Zendo that morning, so one of the monitors, one of the monks would shout, sit still, you know, or if somebody was nodding out, they'd shout, wake up. And I thought, oh, this is kind of intense. You know, I don't know. It's shouting during meditation. I don't know if I like this. But anyway... Um, I, I still felt, you know, I was accustomed to doing things a certain way. So I got up slowly, was folding up my sitting bench and, and the monitor to my surprise shouts at me, move quickly. And so I, <laughs> you know, I kind of jumped and, and I realized I didn't know where to move quickly to. There was a line, you know, in Zen centers, there's a line where you line up in sitting meditation position to go see the teacher. And I didn't know where that line was. And I'm looking around the meditation hall and oh, I see no. a strip of carpet at the back of the meditation hall. And so I'm thinking, okay, uh, that must be it. So I run over there and sit down and, uh, and then they call the rest of anyone else who want, who's going to come see the teacher that morning. The hall just erupts. All these people start running and everything, all the usual people who practice there. I thought, wow, they're all running swiftly. I, I didn't realize at the time there's a Japanese tradition of showing eagerness to, you know, to get to go to see the teacher. And I hadn't shown the requisite eagerness. So, of course, I've just been shouted at. I've just got been placed at the front of the line to meet the teacher. And um, and I'm sitting there, my heart's pounding because my adrenaline was going. And um, and all these people are piling in behind me um, who are going to go see the teacher after me. And then I look around and I realize I don't know what door you go through to see the teacher. Yeah, there's I could see I was in the back of the meditation hall. I could actually see three doors and I didn't know where the teacher's room was. And there's a protocol that I did know from the, my other center, which is you do three full bows to the floor, three full prostrations when you're going to see the teacher. 
one outside the door, one in front of the teacher when you're inside, and then one as you're leaving, the other students coming in. But I'd never been first in line. So anytime I'd gone in to see the teacher before, there'd been someone else coming out and you bow together. So, so I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what door to go through. There's three doors I can see. Nobody's told me. And also, I've never been first in. So what do you do? There's not another student coming out. Do you still bow before the door? And I've been shouted at my adrenaline's going. And you're waiting to hear the teacher's bell, which is a, a little bell they ring. And it's a signal to um, that you're supposed to go then. I'm just sitting there dreading that, hearing that bell. And sure enough, all of a sudden, I hear the bell. And I jump to my feet, I grab my sitting bench, and I kind of freeze for a moment because there's still three doors and I don't know which one. I think, okay, <laughs> it's Zen, when in doubt, bow. So I just ran to one of the doors and, and I just did a full bow in front of it. And the um, same monitor inside the Zendo saw me doing that. And he said, he just shouted, no, 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 no. He's, he shouts to the timekeeper, oh, go help him. And the timekeeper jumps up, runs over, basically physically grabs me carries me through that door, which was just a swinging door to an interior door, which is where the teacher's um, door actually was. And he opens the teacher's door and basically just flings me through it. And uh, so I'm there in front of John Dido-Lori, who's this, you know, well, one of the few American teachers at the time. And the room's darkened and he's a very imposing figure with a shaped head and robes and everything. I couldn't, I could hardly even speak. I was so had been so upset and offended actually by the whole thing. Of course, a lot of times um, when I say a, co a cosmic joke is being played upon you, it means your ego is being subverted. And the whole setup in Zen with going to see the teacher is meant to activate your ego. So if you're feeling offended, you can be sure that your ego has been activated, right? So I'm feeling <laughs> right, offended. Right. I'm feeling upset. I can't, you know, I can't even think of anything intelligent to, to say to the teacher and um, all I really remember about that encounter is within a few short moments, he rang his bell again, at which point I was supposed to leave. So I go back to this, the Zen hall and I'm sitting in meditation while the other people are going in and I'm just sitting there fuming. And I'm, you know, I'm supposed to med meditate and I'm just thinking, what, you know, what is this Nazi Zen, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, I thought we were going to chill out. I thought, you know, where's the compassion? Where's the wisdom? Everyone's shouting at each other. So after the morning sitting was over, I was supposed to stay for the whole day, but I just thought, screw it, I'm getting out of here. And I went up to the dormitory room where I'd stayed and I quickly packed up my backpack and sleeping bag. I thought, I'm just getting out of here. And um, the monastery is a big place. There's three or four floors and it's a little bit maze-like. And uh, so I, I grab my pack and I walk out of the dormitory room into the hallway. And again, there's doors on each end of the hall and I don't really know which one leads to the stairway that takes you out of the building. So I just think, okay, tiptoe over to the do door, open it up and sure enough, there's a stairwell there. And I think, okay, I'm out of here. And I go down the stairs and then I realize on every landing there's a door and I don't know which door goes out to the outside and which, you know, so, so I'm just thinking, okay, I just grab a likely looking door and uh, swing it open thinking I'm escaping. And instead of swing, uh, instead of it being the door to the outside um, and a clear escape route to my car, I open the door to the inner office and I walk in and there's the head monk is sitting there and I walk in with my backpack <laughs> and he looks up at me and with these, this really piercing gaze and then he just 
kind of melts open and he, he says, oh, you have to leave so soon. It's been so wonderful to have you here. And he comes up and just like radiating pure love. He gives me this giant hug. And I'm, I'm, you know, muttering something about, yeah, something came up and I have to leave. I couldn't get out of it at that point. But um, but uh, so we we say goodbye. And he says, I hope you'll come visit us again soon. It's so been so great to have you here. And then I and then he shows me the actual door and I leave. I couldn't kind of get out of leaving at that point. But as I drove away, I was so confused because I, how do I reconcile this? Um, you know, this this feeling like everything was just too intense and rough and, and rude with the fact that this person had just greeted me with I'd never seen such radiance in a person, you know, and perfect oh. love and embraced me. So um you know, that's one of those kinds of stories of the universe. I felt like the universe played a joke on me. If I'd managed to walk out the correct door, I would have gotten the car and gone away and never come back, you know. Mm. And uh, but since I walked through the wrong door, uh, kind of a cosmic joke and, and was met with that kind of really beautiful, um, obviously unconditional love. Um, I just thought, oh, geez, I guess I'm going to have to come back. And sure enough, that's that's the practice center where I spent most of my time in serious practice in years to come. So isn't that interesting? And that that's one of the things that I love about humor is it's subversive in what is getting subverted is your ego. Like you said, right, exactly. When you're offended, there's, you know, what part of you gets offended? It's all only right. your ego, right? That's right. And, and the whole thing, of course, you know, came back to how am I being perceived by these people? How do I think that a person like me ought to be treated, you know, how do I think things should be done? Uh, you know, of course, I didn't like being placed at a disadvantage and being shouted out in the meditation hall and everybody, you know, one imagines people would be thinking poorly of you. But the funny thing is, is uh, when I, I soon after that enrolled in a graduate program at the Naropa Institute, which is the Buddhist influenced college, uh, which has a really well-known writing program. I was getting an MFA in writing. The first summer I was at Naropa Institute, um, we're supposed to be assigned to, um, we're supposed to choose a visiting teacher to assign ourselves to as kind of a TA. And uh, John Didalori, who was the, the, the resident teacher at the monastery where I'd had that whole series of experiences, and the teacher who I'd faced in the interview room and hadn't been able to say hardly a word because I was so, you know, befuddled by everything that happened. It turned out he was going to be there to teach for two weeks. So I signed up to be his, I thought, okay, I'm scared of this guy. I'm intimidated. I guess I'll just sign up to be his TA and just try it on. And, uh, and as it happened, we were interested in a lot of the same things. And after a few days, any sense of intimidation or anything broke down and we became we really became good friends and uh, talk, you know, talking about everything from Zen to art to practice. And, and uh, so I became his formal student for the next 17 years, spent a lot of time at the monastery. But um, he was a great storyteller and his stories about his own Zen practice were a lot of what um, inspired me to do my book of Zen stories, One Bird, One Stone, uh, based on zen teachers and students uh in practicing in the west practicing in the united states and, and europe which at that point had been going on for maybe 50 years 40 50 years 
most of the traditional books of Zen stories, there is quite a tradition of that, but um, most of them are drawn from Eastern sources, ancient Chinese and Japanese masters. But Dido's stories were so vivid and so much fun, really, and a lot of them were so funny that uh, I thought, boy, you know, someone should do a book of stories from people teaching here in the West. And and I thought, well, maybe I should do it. And Dido was very supportive of it. But um, yeah, so that, that, you know, is kind of a cosmic joke that got me deep into the practice in the first place is the way I look back at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the cosmic joke on me was when you and I first met in um, Santa Fe that time and, and I got a, a couple of your books, I said to myself, well, gee, now I just have to have time to read these. And I had a flight that was supposed to take off at 6 a.m. the next morning. Mm-hmm. And long story short, <laughs> it took me almost two days to get from Santa Fe to uh, Atlanta. Oh, wow. And I finished two novels in that time. <laughs> oh, wow. Great. Great. So the, the universe gave me the time that I needed, just well, not the that it's, I expected. <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes the, you know, I'm, I'm renowned among my friends and family for having a poor sense of direction. So me, me running about the monastery in and out of the wrong doors is almost like a French farce, but it's so, you know, <laughs> it's so, it's so fitting that my foible of not, of having a bad sense of direction, um, is what led me in the right direction, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, um, and so often, um, uh, you know, William Blake, the, the, uh, uh, well-known English poet, um, one is very quotable, isn't he? But uh, I just ran across a quote by him that said, uh, uh, any fool who persists in folly will eventually become wise. You know, so, <laughs> So um, that's so perfect. That's so perfect. Yeah. So you could say my story of um, the Zen practice over 30 plus years is I persisted in my folly. (laughs) I don't know if I've quite attained wisdom yet, but um, anyway, I'm working. I'm working that way, you know. And, and, you know, now that, that you mentioned that, my original question is, you know, is there room for humor in very serious spirituality? And I, you know, I guess you could turn that on its head which is frequently what humor is and ask yeah. the question, you know, how could you, how could anybody achieve very deep spirituality without having a sense of humor? You know, sure. the, the thing yeah. that keeps us rigid is the ego, right? Right, right. Yeah. And humor is about subverting our, our expectations. You know, yeah. we think things are going to run one way and then, and they run the other way. And, and, um, and of course, it's our ego that's trying to control things and predict how things are going to go. And and uh, humor subverts our expectations. And life has a tragic dimension and it has a comic dimension. And without the comic dimension to leaven the tragedy, oh boy, I don't know where we'd be. You know, it's yeah. uh, um, it's you know. Again, oftentimes the things that are funny to us in retrospect are not necessarily funny when they're happening, but then they're the stories we tell over and over again, aren't they? One yeah. of the first stories that that Dido, my uh, John Dido Laurie, my my um, longtime Zen teacher, told me that inspired me to write the book One Bird, One Stone and collect other stories was uh, he was a monk at the Zen Center of Los Angeles with Maizumi Roshi. You know, some decades before I'd started practicing and uh, he was he worked there and he was kind of a central figure there and he was very close to his teacher Mizumi Roshi and um, after a few years of, of 
his own practice. He was feeling a little full of himself one day, I guess. And uh, he he said to Maizumi Roshi, uh, you know, I think I've I've really finally clarified the matter of life and death. And Maizumi said, oh, is that so? And Dada said, yeah, I really think, yeah, I really think I'm getting it. And Maizumi said, you've clarified the matter of life and death, have you? And and Dada said, yeah, I think I'm really at peace with that. And with that, Maizumi threw himself violently upon Dido, knocked him to the ground and began to strangle him. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and at first Dido's, you know, frozen and then he can't breathe. So he started, he starts trying to say, Roshi, Roshi, what's going on? Tries to push him while he fight. Roshi won't let go of his throat. And finally Dido just, the only way he can get, get him off him is he just wails at him with his fist and, and, and hits his teacher and knocks him off. And Maizumi gets up because it's kind of brushing off his hands and says, so you've clarified the matter of life and death, have you? <laughs> and, uh, and so Dido gets up, brushes himself off. And a little bit later, he's walking through one of the halls of the meditation center and he passes another of the senior monks. And the senior monk does a double take because he sees the marks of Maizumi's fingers upon Dido's throat. And he stops, he looks at Taito, he goes, oh, no, you didn't say to Roshi that you'd clarified the matter of life and death, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so clearly the same thing had happened to others. You know, this was a stock thing that Maizumi would do to show that, uh, well, if you really cl clarified the matter of life and death, why are you so fighting so hard to breathe, you know? So, of course, this is not, you know, nobody ever did anything that extreme to me. You know, it's... it. it the, those kinds of moments, there's stories of them all through Zen, but, you know, they they have to do with a certain kind of response being the right response for that moment between that student and that teacher, you know, and, and uh, again, it's like pouring the cup of tea until the cup runs over. It's demonstrating something rather than explaining it, which is a big deal in Zen to yeah. demonstrate often through something that seems unconventional or a, even a little bit crazy. Well, you know? and it's experiential, right? The, these right. stories are, you you experience it rather than, you know, integrated intellectually, right? Right, right. And uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's very practical and it's very visceral. You know, if you can't breathe, then, uh, <laughs> then, you, uh, then you understand how deep your attachment to life is, right? You're going to fight you're going to fight like hell to, to get that breath into you. So, Yeah, absolutely. How does, we're talking a lot about Zen, but how does the idea of humor show up in other traditions or archetypes that go across spiritual paradigms? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, certain, there's certain traditions that are more drawn to it than others. And often it's a, like Zen's a particular branch of, of Buddhism that happens to use that happens to value those kinds of crazy wisdom methods or those kind of unconventional or eccentric behaviors. Right. So in the Islamic tradition, there's Sufism, which has a great fondness for for poking fun at human foibles. And uh, it has this uh, great fondness for this holy fool archetype and the um, uh, kind of crazy wisdom, unconventional or eccentric means of pointing to the truth. And so, you know, I'm very fond of the stories of the holy fool Nasruddin and, and the Sufi tradition. There's there's so many stories about how um, his seemingly absurd behavior is, um, is, well, sometimes it's just absurd and sometimes it's concealing wisdom. So um, Nasruddin 
he's a legendary figure and who knows who, you know, whether he really lived or how many of these stories that are attributed to him really, um, you know, have just been made up afterwards. But um, there's one I like where uh, he's uh, Nasruddin is uh, in the marketplace being a beggar, which is apparently he was um, is how he sent, spent part of his life, at least in legend. And uh, and it be, it became known that this man who was the beggar, Nasruddin, was a real idiot. And if you offered him two coins, a higher a higher value coin and a lower value coin, he'd always accept the lower value coin. And so everybody gets interested and they start off going up to this guy to offer him two coins. And, and uh, um, he always accepts the smaller coin. And, and, um, and finally, somebody who knows him and knows that he's kind of pulling a gag on people goes up to him and says, Nasruddin, why, when people offer you money, you always take the smaller coin? And he said, well, you know, look how much money it made by accepting these smaller coins. If I accepted the the higher value coin, nobody would give me any money, you know? So, so he's, um, you know, by apparently behaving like the fool, he's, he's, um, uh, he's he's uh, attracted this kind of interest. There's a story, there's a tr- traditional Zen story that's something like that. Uh, there's this fool of a fisherman who, um, where all the other fishermen are out there fishing with a bent barbed hook to catch the fish, this this man uses, instead of a hook, he uses a straight needle on his fishing rod and he, he drops it in the river and he never catches any fish and everybody thinks the man's an idiot. And, and, uh, and so it's, he, this starts to arouse curiosity and all sorts of people come and start talking to this fisherman who, who uh, instead of fishing with the bent hook, fishes with the straight hook. And uh, finally, the story gets all the way to the ear of the emperor, who's so intrigued, he can't help but come to visit to see this idiot of a fisherman. And uh, he, the, he comes with his whole entourage, and there's the fisherman on the bank of the river, fishing with his silly hook. And, and the emperor goes, fisherman, how is it that that you're using a straight hook instead of a bent hook to fish with. What on earth can you be fishing for? And the fisherman turns to the emperor and says, well, I've been fishing for you, emperor. So (laughs) (laughs) the only way he could ever get the emperor to come see him would be by behaving like a fool, you know? So, yeah. um, So there's a lot of, you know, what we think is, is wise in the world isn't always wise. And what we think is foolish isn't always foolish. And yeah. people who are very full of themselves and full of sanctimony and uh, and apparent learnedness are often the people who are the targets of these uh, uh, of these kinds of stories because, of course, the ego can take hold of anything. So if you become a religious figure, your ego is very likely, if you take yourself too seriously, to take hold of that. And you know, yeah. now yeah. you think you're a you know now you think you're a great teacher or you're an enlightened person or something like that and um so uh these kind of traditions are are full of these stories where where somebody's ego is subverted in in the chinese zen story in this case it's like the emperors you know the uh you know the emperor is slightly made a fool of by this fool of of a fisherman you know yeah so. Well, and it makes me think of the the Western story of the emperor's new clothes. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, it has to be a it has to be a young child that points it out. Right. It has to be somebody who's so innocent because everybody yeah. else is so caught up in the in the ego trip of of uh, 
uh, supporting the emperor's bizarre idea that he's wearing the finest suit of clothes in the world when he's actually walking naked. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it takes yeah. a child to see the truth. It takes a holy fool to see the truth. You know, there's there's all sorts of stories in Zen about people who tried too hard and took themselves too seriously. Of course, like my story at the monastery shows, practice is taken very seriously, you know, but, but um, you know, discipline is taken very seriously. But um, uh, I forget which, which famous story it is of, of somebody who became a great master, uh, uh, practiced and practiced and practiced, the most diligent person in the monastery, the seri most serious person in the monastery, practiced and practiced, performed austerities, refused all pleasures, sat all through the night, didn't sleep, didn't eat, wanted enlightenment more than anything else. You know, of course, in those days, you could join the monastery when you were 10 years old or 12 years old. So, you know, after 20 years of this, the monk's still a young man and he just goes, screw this. I've been devoted, you know, I've been, I've been devoting myself to this so seriously for all these years and I've been missing out on all of life's pleasures and screw this. So he, he, um, uh, he finds a ladder and he climbs over the monastery wall and and he's somehow saved up a few coins. He goes, screw it. I'm going to a brothel. And he goes, <laughs> to, he goes to a brothel. And, and uh, so the story goes uh, at the moment that he achieves climax with one of the ladies at the brothel. All of a sudden he's enlightened, you know, <laughs> so that's how he becomes the great the great master is by giving it all up. And yeah, you know. so there's it's all sorts of stories. Um, yeah, like that, like, where you, you try and you try and you try and try and finally you give up or finally life plays a joke on you or, you know, um, it takes something to puncture how serious you're being, how sanctimonious you're being, how seriously you're taking yourself. Right. You know? Well, and, it, and it's it's non-dual and it's that balance thing, right? You, you right. If, if, if he'd just spent his whole life in a brothel, he wouldn't be enlightened. Of it was course the, not. It was, yeah. the, it was the letting go of the other, but it was letting both be at the same time. Exactly. You know, to, yeah. to, to be exactly. serious, to be committed, to be, um, to, to care about the result and also to let it go, to not yeah. become attached to it, to not right. cling to it. And to, yeah. and, to, to find that balance and let that both things be true at the same time, you know? Right, right. Yeah, there's that famous story that comes from somewhere in Christianity of, um, oh, it's told in so many different versions, and uh, it's been updated for the, for the 21st century, but it's the story about, a lot of us have heard it, I'm sure, the man is in, there's a man, in, a very devout man of God who's in a flood, <clears throat> and a giant mm -hmm. flood comes in and engulfs his house and he climbs up to the second story and the flood engulfs the second story and he climbs up to the attic and the flood engulfs there and finally climbs up to the roof and uh and a rescue team comes in a boat and and says come on get you know get in the boat we're getting you out of here and the man goes no no i'm waiting for god to send me to save me i'm waiting for god to save me and a uh, little while after that uh, um an airplane comes over and they, you know, um, they shout down to him through a megaphone here. We're dropping a ladder. Climb up. And the man goes, no, no, I'm not getting in the airplane. I'm ready for God to save me. OK, let's make it a seaplane so they can land on the flood. <laughs> you know? A little while later, a helicopter comes. Um, says, come in, get in, get in, we're trying to save you. And the man goes, no, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And so finally the flood engulfs him, the man drowns, and he's at the gates of heaven. He walks in and he meets God for the first time. He says, God, I was waiting for you. Why didn't, he, why didn't you save me in the flood? 
God says, what are you talking about? I sent you a boat, a plane, and a helicopter, you know? <laughs> so so that, there's that, uh, you know, there's that that notion that we're, we have a fixed idea of what the holy is, of what God is, of what the sacred is. Right. Uh, I, me- I mentioned to you when we were discussing doing this talk that there's a, there's a Zen koan, you know, uh, the the um, apparently paradoxical statements or stories that you sometimes sit with and then you have to go see the teacher present your understanding of it, but there's no way you can get a linear or logical understanding of it. Um, and uh, the famous one that everyone knows is what's the sound of one hand clapping, right? It's obviously absurd and there's no, actually a lot of the koans, there's no way to present them without being silly, you know? So if you're if you're trying to present a serious answer to what is the sound of one hand clapping, forget it. You'll never get anywhere. You have to be willing to be a bit of a fool, you know, to 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 see how to present it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it like that, but that's yeah. the purpose of a koan, right? Is to yeah. force you into the position of the fool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much. Yeah. Your ego is not your ego and your linear sequential logical mind is not going to be able to sort out a way to to present it. A lot of times you have to be willing in this in this situation that looks so um, disciplined, you have to be willing to be silly. If I'd been willing to that day, my first time at the monastery to go on before the teacher and just reveal myself as tell him the funny story of what just happened and how upset I was you know, we might've made a connection. The whole thing might've gone a lot more successfully, but instead yeah. I was trying to protect myself, you know? So, which yeah. of course it's all set up where you can't protect yourself. So in, um, in Zen, this is a shocking koan to people, but one of the early koans that you, that you have to, um, answer or present properly is the monk asks the master, like a lot of these begin, um, what is Buddha? And, um, uh, and the master says, Buddha is shit stick. <laughs> and shit sticks were the were the corn cobs that they used in the monasteries in the old days, I guess, to wipe their bottoms. They didn't have toilet paper. They used corn cobs. So that's what he, he's basically saying. Uh, Buddha is what you wipe your bottom with. And on the one hand, many people find that shocking. In other religious traditions, it's hard to imagine, you know, pointing to some, <laughs> you know, great saint of the tradition or prophet of the tradition and saying they're a shit stick. But, of course... I got to love a tradition that'll that'll go that far to point out that everything's sacred. Of course, everything's sacred, isn't it? You know, what we do in the bathroom is sacred. You know, a decaying uh, dead skunk on the side of the road is sacred. What isn't sacred? Everything's sacred, yeah. you know? And yeah. so oftentimes, especially in the Zen tradition, they'll point to something that a person's sure to think is, can't, that can't be sacred. That can't be Buddha, you know? Um, well, that that reminds me of my my favorite Nazardine story, oh, yeah. which is that uh, Nazardine is is uh, at the mosque and the imam comes in and he finds Nazardine with his feet up on the altar. Mm. And he says, Nazardine, what are you doing? Get yeah. your feet off the altar. That is a sacred place. Yes. And Nazardine says, well, where do you want me to put them? Yeah, right. Right. There's no place to put the feet that aren't sacred. Yeah. 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 Points to the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, Sean, what's your favorite joke, or <laughs> colon, or funny story? Well, there's um, 
there's one that I, I was told when I was doing the research for my one bird, one stone that I'm very fond of. It's about this, um, this Chinese monk who moved to um, a small uh, town, very small town in Tennessee in the uh, early 1960s. And, uh, uh, you know, this was a time of... Um, repression of Buddhism in China. So um, there were a handful of Chinese monks who managed to get to Hong Kong. And if you could get to Hong Kong, maybe you could get to the United States. And uh, so um, this this monk did that. His name was Dei Chun. And uh, he somehow lands in this small town in the middle of the Bible Belt, the fundamentalist Bible Belt in Tennessee, right? And he's a monk. He's lived as a monk his whole life. So he lands there just like he would land anywhere in a many times patched yellow monk's robe that's probably 20, 30 years old, a pair of straw sandals that are falling apart. Maybe he's got a straw hat fixed with duct tape, you know, and uh, somebody offers him a cabin because there was a there was a college nearby and there were a few people there who who were interested in Buddhism or were kind of hosting him. So somebody gives him a cabin to live in to, in, in this village. And you can imagine what an outsider he would have been, you know, 1960s, backwards Tennessee. And if he wants to try and fit into the community, what's he going to do? Knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Dei Chun. I'm a Chinese monk. You know, he's standing there in his patch robe. Nobody's going to, everybody's going to just think, who is this guy? He's nuts. We just don't even understand what he's about. But um, um, anyway, he's, uh, he moves into this cabin and one day he's standing out in the yard just enjoying the day and one of his neighbors walks by and points to this enormous dead oak tree that's in Daytron's front yard and says you know what sir you better cut that tree down or one of these days we're going to have a storm that's going to blow over and crush your house and Daychun says oh okay thank you I take care of it and he's just learning English of course and uh and so the next day he goes to a thrift store and he buys a hatchet and uh, I picture him buying like one of these little Boy Scout hatchets, you know. Right. And the next day he goes to work on this oak tree's enormous trunk with a hatchet, you know. And he starts chopping away and next day he chops away and next day he chops away. And it becomes this, this thing where he chops away a little bit every day and he's not making much progress. But it arouses all this curiosity about the neighbors and, you know, from the neighbors. And they start stopping over to see what this crazy fellow is doing, you know, chopping away with a hatchet and one guy comes over with a power saw and says, hey, we can cut this thing down in a minute. And Dei Chen says, no, thank you. No, I do it my way. He chops away with his hatchet. You know, next day somebody comes with an enormous chainsaw. Hey, I'll cut this thing down for you. No, no, I do it my way. So it takes a year. It takes two years. Who knows how long it takes for him. But one day, sure enough, he's chopped away for enough day after day after day um, that uh, – the tree finally falls with a enormous crash that shakes all the houses on the street. And then all the neighbors come out by this time, of course, he's become a neighborhood phenomena, cause for conversation. And everybody loves the guy, you know, now they come out and they see he's actually done it. He's knocked down the tree, you know, and, and, uh, and one of the neighbors says, well, Dei Chun, what are you going to do now? And Dei Chun holds up his hatchet and says, now I make firewood, starts chopping away at the volunteer. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I just think it's it's such an obviously nutty way to do things, but that's what broke down all the barriers between him and his neighbors, you know, is uh, 
you know, they all became interested in this crazy guy, came over, started talking to him before long. He's part of the neighborhood, you know. Yeah. Um, but he, he later said when he was asked about it, he said that's the way he was secretly teaching them meditation. You chop away a little bit every single day and one day an enormous tree falls. Wow. And that's exactly the way meditation works, isn't it? You know, yeah. you, you can you can practice for years and feel like, am I getting anywhere? And sure enough, that little hatchet of, of uh, uh, you know, in the same way water can wear away a canyon over time, you know, yeah. our dedicated practice of meditation eventually can fell even this enormous ego, you know, that we carry around. So. Yeah. And in the meantime, you're just chopping away. I, I love it how Richard Rohr says it's good for us to practice meditation every day because everybody should have a little bit of failure <laughs> baked in. Yeah, right, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's um, there's a tradition in Zen of, of calling our practice, anyone's practice, you know, one failure after another, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Life's one like one long failure. And, you know, I guess I guess a serious person could see that as uh, daunting. But, um, you know, f if you have a little bit of tongue in cheek uh, way of looking at the world, uh, doesn't it kind of lighten things up a little bit? It's like, oh, you know, I'm not. It's like my first visit to the monastery. I wasn't there to succeed or impress anyone. I was there to fail. That was the whole point of it. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's the whole thing that drew me into practice. So. Yeah, and and that's part of the comedy too, right? Is we we do this thing that we're not going to get an immediate tangible benefit for, right? On that right. day, you know. Right. I mean, maybe you know it makes your makes your day go better and whatnot. But but the purpose yeah. of it is that chipping away, you know. Yeah, there's a um, there's a a well known. Koan, uh, not, not a koan, a uh, haiku poem by a Japanese haiku poet named Isa that speaks to this that I like uh, like very much. You know, haikus being the very short three-line poems. Um, and uh, Isa is a haiku poet with a sense of humor from the 18th century. Uh, and uh, so this haiku is, um, O snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. <laughs> oh, snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. I just think, what a lovely way of looking at the world. He's probably out for a walk at the foot of Mount Fuji, and he sees a snail crawling along. It's so uh, it's so emblematic of how our human progress goes. You know, you can't, in, yeah. in the spiritual yeah. life, you can't get anywhere quickly. In the spiritual life, you can't get anywhere quickly. And it's not yeah. about gaining. It's about giving up as much as it is about gaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Sean, thanks so much for our conversation today. I want to encourage people to take advantage of the opportunity to come see you speak at Zeitgeist on Saturday, February 22nd. Um, and all the information is on our website at zgatl.org. Thanks, Sean. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. Really appreciate the time today. Yeah, thank you. We'll do some practice and some laughter and it should be a good, uh, good few hours together. Thank you, Debbie.